But two weeks ago, we started a, a, a sermon, a teaching on, huh? On unity, right? So we're going to have to do a little catch-up, apparently, from part one, if nobody remembers it. <laughs> but before we recap, I wanted to start with sharing with you why it's on my heart to discuss unity. So, 2020. 2020 has made me realize that we've got something really special. This year, during crisis, chaos, not knowing what each week's going to bring, I think we have come together. I think we've come together as a family. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are we getting on each other's nerves, son? Probably. But we've been a safety place to come together. I'm going to use the word unified. We've been in unity, right? So God kind of started stirring this back when we were starting to talk about revival. And the question became we have unity, but are we completely unified? Like, do we understand what unity means? And so then I kept thinking about it, kept praying, and I realized there's a sad truth. I've never seen unity in church. So I don't know what to compare it to. And I think that's a pretty sad statement. I think I've seen unity in our church. I've seen something I've never seen before, and I think we want it. Like, I want unity. You want unity, right? I don't want to make you think that we don't have what you think we have, but we want unity. But have you ever experienced it in church before? Has anybody ever experienced unity in church before? I'm guessing by the fact that you're here, the answer was no, right? So I wanted to say two weeks ago, and I did say the world is filled with disunity and can't have unity, but I was praying this week, and God just showed me the problem is it's not just the world that's filled with disunity. It's the church that's filled with disunity, and that's a problem. The church is so filled, not necessarily ours, but the church in general is so filled with disunity. What does it do? Does it make people want to come? Are people attracted? No, they're turned off. So I do think we have a unity that I haven't seen before. But does that mean we don't have areas that we need to work on? I think we all have areas we need to work on personally, in our families, here as a church. I think there are areas where we can grow, and that's really what I want to explore. So my commitment to you is that I'm going to fight like heck to maintain the unity that we have and to continue to help you grow it. Now, I'm not perfect, right? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, John. I make mistakes. I don't always do the right thing, but I'm learning too. So this is a learning process for all of us. So if we walk through this and we talk about unity versus disunity and we discover areas we're not unified and we need to get unified, I don't want you to take that as getting beat up. We're learning. We're in this together. Like I said before, if we'd experienced unity before, you probably wouldn't be here. Um, you know, in March of 2019, I had never led a church before. I thought year two would be awesome. We would get our groove, we would click, and then we got 2020. But I do think something awesome is coming out of 2020, and I've said this multiple times. I think we're seeing some unity, and I just want to keep exploring. I want to dig into what unity truly is because I want to get us on the same page. So here's a pretty sad statement. A well-known theologian, and I can't find where I found it, and I can't remember his name. I want to give him credit. I just remember he was a well-known theologian, a name you would recognize. Back several years ago, he said, one of the greatest sicknesses in our churches in America is disunity. 
One of the greatest sicknesses in our churches in America is disunity. Andy, didn't you say disunity leave? Disunity is something that we're going to have to continually fight. Satan knows if he can get disunity in the church, it won't attract believers or, or those that are unbelievers. So he went on to say the early church in Jerusalem thrived because it was so unified. In Acts 2, 47, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to those who were being saved. And he says the phrase having favor with all the people refers to those on the outside looking at the church. So the people on the outside looking in saw unity, selflessness, not selfishness, and it drew them. They were attracted, right? So that's what we want. Um, we want something that's attractive so that the people that are here will stay here. We want something that's attractive to draw people here who are believers or non-believers to strengthen them. All right, so i got to go back over two weeks ago since nobody remembers. Two weeks ago, we started by asking some questions, and I'm going to breeze through the recap, I promise. We ask questions like, what do you think of when I say the word unity? Do you think there's a difference between biblical unity and, quote, worldly unity? To have unity, does that mean we always got to agree on everything? Can we agree to disagree and still have unity? There's a different way to ask that. Can we have conflict and be in unity? Kind of answer those first three, but we really didn't get into this one, and we're going to get into more today. And then the final question was, why is unity important? Why is it important in the body of Christ? So again, we answered some of those. We're going to try to finish that up today. I define unity. My simple definition was smaller, unique things come together to create something more powerful. So each of us is small, right? We are something small. We are each unique. We each have unique giftings and talents. <laughs> And experiences, we each have something unique to give, and when each of us that's small comes together, what do we create? Something more powerful. Okay? I gave three examples of unity. I'm a, you know, I'm an analogy person. The first one was our body. Paul talks about it, but your finger is attached to your hand, is attached to your wrist, is attached to your forearm, is attached to your elbow, bicep, tricep, shoulder. What does that create? Several simple things by themselves create something very complex in arm. My shoulder's no good if I got no hand, right? Or it's limited. I shouldn't say it's no good. It's limited. So little things have to come together to make something big. We talked about rivers. Tennessee River, 632 miles long. Two rivers make it up, the Holston and French Broad River. They flow, Tennessee River flows into the Ohio River. Ohio River flows into the Mississippi River, flows to the ocean. So there's a stream right out here. For those that weren't here, I talked about there's a stream out here that comes out from under our parking lot, runs 24-7, 365. No matter how dry or wet it is, it runs. It goes into Floyd's Creek that runs into another creek that runs into the Tennessee River. So the water coming out of this parking lot eventually feeds the mighty Mississippi. Something small. You know, it's easy to talk about the French Broad and the Holston, the big rivers, the Ohio River, but what about all the little small creeks? and streams that come together to make those big rivers. That's unity, right? We talked about the Mississippi River is known as the, one of the most ferocious rivers in the world. You can't swim from one side to the other without drowning. But if you didn't have all these little streams coming out of Friendsville and all these other places, would it be so ferocious? Would it have so much unity? The quote I read was, the ferocity of a river, the ferocity 
of a river originates from the merging of many streams. Unity is power. So hold on to that thought. I asked you to hold on to it two weeks ago. Hold on to it again. Unity is power. And don't forget the small things. So we talked about your body. We talked about rivers. We talked about the worship team. Piano by itself sounds good. Guitar by itself sounds good. Drum by itself sounds good. Bass by itself sounds good. What happens when you bring them all together? Sounds better. All of them by themselves stand alone, but you bring them together, it sounds better. Right? So whether I'm talking about your body, your river, band, worship team, the sum of small parts creates a more powerful good thing. Right? Big thing. You with me? It often takes smaller things that are unified to make the bigger thing. But what do we do? We take our finger for granted because it's a small thing, right? Until we break it. And then we have disunity. Pinky toe. We talked about a pinky toe. Glad you remember that. Smaller than my finger, but man, it has more of an impact on my body when it's broken, right? It's easy to think about the big things, but what about the little things? So we often take for granted that small stream running out here. We often take for granted an instrument. And I think we often take for granted what we, as a small thing, offer to the body of Christ. So I'm asking you to search yourself as we talk this. Do you feel like you are part of something bigger? Do you feel like you have a place? Do you feel like what you have to offer, as small as you may think it is, means something? For the unity of the bigger thing. We often think about big things coming together, right? In ministry, we're thinking evangelists. You know, I saw during COVID, there was a YouTube video that came out, and all these powerful prophets came together, and you know every one of their names. And that was power, right? I don't know. It seemed to me like they were all competing for airtime. They all had the same thing to say. They just tried to put a different spin on it. I'm going to agree with what you said, so-and-so, but God showed me this, too. They got in competition. So we often think that in ministry, it's got to be the big evangelists, the big prophets. You know, what happens if you try to put Billy Graham and T.D. Jakes and Joel Olstein and all these guys on the same stage together? Well, back when Billy Graham was live. Well, what happened? There's not enough time, Right? But we take for granted the guys behind the scenes that were setting up the stage. The guys that were putting the music, the cables together. We take for granted the person that was running the camera for that big Zoom meeting of all those powerful prophets. We tend to think about the big things that come together, but we don't think about the small, unique things, right? So if we're going to define unity, then we've got to talk about what's the opposite of unity. Disunity. So I just simply define it as anything that hinders unity or blocks unity. And I do think there are different levels of disunity, and that's what we were talking about. If I break my finger, that causes disunity to my body, but if I break my pinky toe, it causes more disunity. So even though something is really small, your pinky toe, it can create a lot of disunity. So don't take that for granted. You as a small thing can create a lot of unity, but you as a small thing can create a lot of disunity too. If I dam up this creek out here, I'm probably not going to stop the Mississippi River from flowing, right? Going to create disunity, but if I go out here and pour 100 gallons of poison in it, I'm probably going to affect something downstream. Different levels of disunity. If an instrument goes out of tune, it creates disunity, right? 
a cable goes out and it just quits, it creates disunity, but it's different. You lose a sound versus a weird sound, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to say it again. Unity takes the sum of small parts coming together to make something powerful. But little things can also create disunity and destroy something before it becomes powerful. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10, just summing up, he said, Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be unified. And the word he used there for unified was more of a verb. It meant to fit, to complete, to mend, to repair, to equip, to strengthen, to perfect. So he wasn't saying achieve this status. He was saying you've got to do something to be unified. Don't have division. Do these things. Mend relationships. Repair brokenness. Equip people. Strengthen them. Work to complete each other, to perfect it. It's a very powerful word. As we looked at Scripture, I kind of put together some ingredients that Paul laid out for unity. First was Jesus. We need Jesus, and we need the authority he left us. Second was we got to work. It's going to take some work. We don't just show up and it happens. We don't just show up and it happens because a few people are achieving it. Everyone has to work. The third thing is we have to have the Holy Spirit. Fourth is we've got to understand our gifts and where we fit into the body. Paul talks extensively in 1 Corinthians about just how the body has different parts. Each of us has a different part in the body. So quit comparing ourselves to someone else. And the fifth thing, he said we need love. So we need Jesus and his authority. We've got to work. We need the Holy Spirit. We've got to understand our gifts and find our role. And we need love. Then we talked about Satan hates unity. He hates Jesus. He hates the work you're going to put into it. He hates the Holy Spirit. He hates your gifts. He doesn't want you to know your role. And he hates love. So that's why I said the world will never have unity. The church is going to have to fight for it. And I think that's the problem is people not understanding the, what their individual roles and having to fight for it constantly. It takes time to build. Okay, so that's the recap. Now we transition into today. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Today may seem a little tough. Today may seem a little uncomfortable. Today, you may feel targeted. But understand that this entire teaching today came out of what God's doing in my heart, not directed at you. I said you may feel targeted. That doesn't mean you are targeted. I promise that. Maybe if you feel targeted, it's because the Holy Spirit's telling you you need to deal with something. You know, say 10, 15 years ago, every time I went to church, I didn't really like it because I thought the preacher was preaching at me. I thought Wendy called ahead every week. <laughs> it's like, man, why is he always preaching at me? This is no fun. <laughs> then one day I realized maybe God's showing me all the areas I need to work on. And that's why it's offensive, right? So I'm asking you today, don't get mad at me <laughs> if I say something that feels targeted. Remember, it probably happened with me up here this week. Maybe I'm laying in a hammock and I'm praying and God goes, you need to deal with this. I'm like, son of a gun, I thought I was on vacation. I'm not in a hammock to be told what to do or I'm messing up. But if I do make you mad, please come talk to me because I don't want to hinder unity, okay? Everybody relax now? You good? Everybody ready? So I'm going to start with a question I ask at the beginning. Can we have conflict 
and be unified? I want yes or no answers. Can we have conflict and be unified? I heard a yes. Can I get a no? Is there any no's? Can we have conflict and be unified? Don't go there. That's my second point. <laughs> you just got targeted. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can we have conflict and be unified? I got a yes and I got a no. I'm going to say both. Conflict can absolutely destroy unity. And conflict can absolutely lead to building unity if it's handled correctly. So I'm going to say that again. Conflict can absolutely destroy unity. And conflict can absolutely build unity if it's handled correctly. And I know that sounds a little bit double-minded at first. It sounds like a trick question. But conflict that goes unresolved will always, always destroy unity. Always. But when you have conflict and you deal with it the right way, it will always what? Build, create, build unity. Think about as kids. You ever, can you think back to your childhood? Some of us got to think back farther than others. Can you think back to a kid you couldn't stand? But one day you got into a fight, fist fight. Maybe this applies more to boys than girls. I don't know. Maybe you got into a hair pull and slapping match, whatever. And out of that, the two of you became best friends. Has that ever happened? I got one of these. <laughs> it may have caused some other pain and questionable things in your life. But my point is you can see that sometimes with two kids, they don't get along, they don't get along, they don't get along, and then they fight it out, and all of a sudden they're best friends. The crazy thing is I've seen that in adults. Now, I'm not encouraging you to fight it out. Just bear with me. I'm just saying we do the same as adults. We just fight different. We disagree. We disagree. We talk about each other behind their back. We spread rumors. And all of a sudden, one day, it comes to a head, and we kind of argue it out, and we get on the same page. And it's like, hey, we weren't that far off the same page to begin with. Maybe we can be friends. Maybe we can coexist now. And a relationship builds out of it. So if I look at Scripture... I'm going to kind of start here with Paul and Peter. Both of them said we're going to have sins. Both of them said we're going to make mistakes. And both of them said one thing would get us through it. Anybody know what that is? Four-letter word, love. Ephesians 4.2, Paul said, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. He didn't spend time in that verse saying quit having faults he said make allowance for your faults I don't want to have faults but what does this say I'm a sinner on my best day I'm going to have faults and you're going to have to make allowance for my faults because of your love and I've got to do the same for you Peter in 1 Peter 4 8 said most important of all so this is the guy that was arguably Jesus' best friend Jesus picks him to build the church on him the rock and that guy says, most important of all, that's when I'm going to listen, okay? Peter says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. So Paul said, you're going to have faults. I'm paraphrasing. You're going to have faults. Your love's got to cover. Peter said, you're going to have sin. Your love has to cover it. And that's the most important thing. 
okay? So I'm trying to start there that we got to quit expecting people to be perfect. I think that's our problem in church. I think that I'm going to come up here and give you this great message, and you're going to go off and be a perfect person. Or you confront someone with a sin, you love them through it, and you expect they're going to be perfect from that point forward. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that. It says we have to be ready for those faults. It's not a license to have faults, but we have to have love to cover those faults. They're saying we're not going to be perfect. Quit expecting people to be perfect, but let your love cover it when they're, un- when they're not perfect. We will have conflict is, I think, another way they could say it. What does Jesus say? We talked about this extensively last year. Matthew 18, the famous Matthew 18 model. Jesus tells us how to handle conflict and how many of us are doing it. Are we doing it? Because I remember preaching on it about two weeks later, seeing people and going, did you hear two weeks ago? We talked about the Matthew 18 model. This is where it may step on toes, but understand I'm stepping on my own. Jesus laid out how to handle conflict. I'm going to give a refresher. He laid out three main points. Number one, if someone has sinned against you. He didn't say if someone has disagreed with you. He said if someone has sinned against you, go to that person one-on-one. And point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. There's a second step. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you, will, everything you say will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. What does that infer? That infers that when you went one-on-one, it didn't get resolved, and now you each have a story, and you need somebody to be present to confirm what was actually said, Right? And then the third step is if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. It's pretty harsh. You know what a pagan is? Someone who doesn't believe in God. They're in your church. We assume they're a Christian. But if they don't receive correction in sin, it says treat them as if they're a pagan. Pretty clear cut, three-step process, but I ask the question again. How many of us can raise their hand right now and say, I follow this every time I have conflict? Man. I kind of can raise my hand. I kind of do it, but not always. Is it your first thought? So, A lot of you know, I saw some funny looks when I said Matthew 18. Some of you have had the Matthew 18 model with you, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. And I'll tell you what I've seen. Every time it's created unity. Every time we've addressed the conflict the way Jesus said it created unity. Every time. Now, was it comfortable? Never. It's never comfortable to sit down and say, I think you've sinned against me and I need to talk to you about it. It's never comfortable. Nowhere does it say it's going to be comfortable. And that's why nobody wants to do it, right? It's not fun. It's easier to look the other way and pretend it's not going to happen and eventually they'll hear the sermon and they'll quit doing it or whatever. 
Eventually, God, I'm just going to back off. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to pray for them. It's God's job to convict their heart. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if it happens, you have to do something. What happens when you don't address conflict with this model and in love? I think there's an and in there. This model Jesus laid out and in love. What happens every time? Disunity. If you come to me and ask for advice because you're mad at someone, what do I always point people to do? Matthew 18, model. Have you talked to him yet? If you're talking about people behind their back and you're not addressing it, you are causing disunity. If you come to me and say, I heard this and people are saying, you ever hear that term? People are saying. Just wanted you to know that people are saying. What does that infer? Everybody's against what you're doing. No one has the courage to tell you, I don't have a problem, but I'll tell you what everybody else is saying. Nine times out of ten, the thought that crosses my mind is it's your problem. You're just trying to be passive-aggressive and pass it off on somebody else. So my first question is, if people are saying, then that people needs to come to me directly. And if they don't, I'm going to ask you who that people is, and I'm going to go to them and do the Matthew 18 model. Because that's gossip, and that's going to create disunity. Oh, here's going to be a tough one, because I think this hits us all. If you're avoiding the conflict because you hope it'll go away, or you just want peace, just want peace, you're creating disunity. But hang on a second. Jesus said, blessed is the peacemaker, right? Didn't he say that? He did. But I'm going to say that addressing the conflict with a model that Jesus gave us is what you use to make peace. Avoiding the conflict. (laughs) Avoiding the conflict and hope that peace is just going to magically happen. I'm going to give you a term. Some of y'all know Miss Bonnie Mitchell. She used to tell me and Wendy, there's a difference between a peacemaker and a peace lover. Jesus said, blessed is the peacemaker, someone who deliberately goes and addresses the conflict and thus chooses peace and unity. But then there's some of us that we love peace so much, we're going to pretend the conflict's not there, and eventually the peace will happen, right? Either it'll go away, they'll be convicted, it'll stop, somebody else will say something to them. And that's not going to create unity. Being a peace lover is going to create disunity. I think I probably just stepped on everybody's toes because we're all peace lovers at some point. We don't want to say something. What about the church or people that don't address conflict, bullies or whatever? You know, they're bullies in the church. Because they're afraid they're going to lose that person. I don't want to lose the gifts they bring to the body. I don't want to lose their talent they bring to the worship team. I don't want to lose them as a giver. I've been on staff at two churches that made decisions on how to address people after they went and looked at giving records. And I don't care if they're listening right now. It's fact. This person wants counseling. Go look and see how much they've been given. I was told, don't counsel this person because they haven't given. (laughs) 
That's not unity. And I've also been told, don't counsel this person too hard because they're great givers. So you're going to allow things to happen that shouldn't happen. That's going to create disunity because you don't trust the creator of the universe to supply your need. That's a problem. The problem is many churches have allowed this conflict to happen and so have I. I promise you I've never made a decision in this church based on giving. But I have not addressed conflicts for fear of hurting people or losing their gift or talent. I'm sorry. I've done it. I told you this was for me. Many churches have allowed it to happen. But Jesus and Paul and Peter, I'm sorry, in this point, Jesus and Paul are pretty clear of what you do with people that don't change and repent. Simple. Get away from them. Get them out. Jesus said treat them as a pagan. Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 5, and he's really talking about sexual sin, but he says if you know about it and you allow it to happen in your church, wrong. Get them out. So we address it, we address it biblically, and if it doesn't go away, we don't put up with it and turn our heads. We have to get it out if we want unity. And man, this sounds harsh, right? But we don't want to push people away from the church. We don't want, I don't want to stand in judgment one day and, and, and think if I push someone away that I've got to answer for their salvation, right? Anybody ever thought that before? But the Bible says this is what you do if they make the decision to continue to willfully sin. It's not on me. It's on that person, right? So when we gossip about people, when we talk about them, and by the way, if you come to me and ask me for advice on how to handle something, I appreciate that, and I want you to do that. But if I advise you to go to do the Matthew 18 model, and you do, praise the Lord. If you don't, all you did was gossip. Because now i got something in my mind they did wrong. They may or may not have done wrong. And we've said this before, and we had a picture up a couple weeks ago. There's two sides to every story. Every story. And unfortunately, the truth usually doesn't lie on one side or the other. It lies in the middle because we have, I'm not saying we're liars. I'm saying we have different perspectives on things. I can go into an argument with my wife, and you can talk to her, and we have totally different perspectives on what happened. We don't even know we're arguing about half the time, right? (laughs) I got a thumbs up from a male on that one. That was good, Jeff. I'm sorry. (laughs) His wife's not in here, so I can say that. What I'm saying is if you come to me, my first question usually is what's the rest of the story? But the first thing I want to encourage you to do, and if I don't, you need to challenge me, is to do the Matthew 18 model. And if you don't, you are gossiping, and that does not create unity. We're talking a lot about what doesn't create unity, but sometimes it's what Paul did. He talked about what doesn't create love to tell you what love is. Okay. So Peter, Paul, Jesus, pretty specific. You've got to address the conflict because it's going to exist. So we can't expect it not to exist. And if people don't change, if they don't address their sin, we've got to get them out. This is my time to go on a tangent. It's a little bit of a planned tangent. But doesn't this go against the seeker-friendly church of today? How many of you have heard that term, seeker-friendly? I hate the term, but have you heard it? It's when we change our church to gather in people. 
Here's the problem with the American church that's got this disease of disunity in it. It's adopted this concept of being culturally relevant or all-inclusive. So I need to be culturally relevant. I don't need to teach on hard things and step on your toes because that may make you not want to come back. That's culturally relevant. And our city's full of it. The bigger it gets, the easier the messages are. The bigger it gets, the bigger the lights are. The better the band is, the better the singing is, the better the coffee is, the better the free donuts are. That's culturally relevant. Or we go the other way and say, man, if I tell you that this sin is going to exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to hurt you and you're going to leave, so I need to include that and be all-inclusive and accept your sin and say it's okay. We sang a song, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. God designed the Israelites to be set apart. We weren't designed to get Jesus. They were. They rejected him, so we got him, right? So now we get the opportunity to get set apart. So being a part of the body of Christ means to be set apart, not inclusive and culturally relevant. And I'm telling you, it's a tangent because as I went through this, it just, it just stood out how much I've been a part of we can't talk on these tough things because it may hurt someone's feelings. Now, what's the other extreme of that? Some of us grew up in the other extreme where the pastor was so controlling and every message was to put you down and make you feel like you weren't good enough so it gained that pastor more control. Scripture was changed. Anybody been a part of those churches? So you got this extreme. The pastor-controlled church where the pastor's on a pedestal and the pastor is the one that's worshipped. Or you got this, we forgot who God is, that he's set apart and holy, and we're going to include everything. And neither of those are unified. A pastor up on a pedestal is not unity. A pastor that puts himself in front of the Holy Spirit and God in front of the people is not unity. I never saw Jesus put himself in front of the disciples. He walked with them. He showed them how to do it. He didn't talk down to them. Yeah, he corrected them. But my point is neither of those is correct. A pastor should nurture and bring out the best in people, not control people for their agenda. That would be disunity. And changing scripture to fit today's culture, that is not unity. If you change scripture to make your church more relevant, the authority of Jesus is out the door and the Holy Spirit's out the door. I'm just telling you that right now, and I've seen it. I've been a part of a church that had it and let it go to be culturally relevant. All right, I'm done with that tangent. Conflict and how you deal with it will have a huge impact on unity. That's why I'm focusing so much on this. We ha I'm begging you, we have to deal with conflict. Now, what about disagreeing? Aaron brought it up. It was brought up earlier. What if we disagree on something? If we disagree on the meaning of a scripture, does that create disunity? What if we disagree, huh? Got it. it depends. 
what if you disagree on how we're doing church on Sunday morning and how we change up so much and how we try to do different every week? If you disagree with that, does that mean we have disunity? And I think sort of like conflict, we have to separate disagreements. Disagreements is different than conflict. Conflict, conflict is sin. Disagreements is we see things differently, and they're two different things. If we disagree on something, and then you go and talk about me behind my back because you don't have the courage to tell me you disagree, that is gossip, and that is creating disunity. But if we disagree on something and you come tell me and I go study and pray and ask for guidance, this happened a couple weeks ago, by the way, and I spent all week seeking an answer and I came back with an agree to disagree. But wait, we live in a world that says we can't agree to disagree. It's got to be you either agree with me or you're wrong. You agree with me or we go separate ways. That's disunity. I'm going to give an easy one. Some people read scripture and think there's going to be a rapture. Some people read it and say there's not going to be a rapture. Can we agree to disagree on that? Yes, because we read scripture and God showed us something different or we understood it different. Now, if you come to me and go, wait, Jesus is not the only way to heaven, that's not a disagreement. That's going against a fact in the Bible that says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Only through him. So you see what I'm saying? A disagreement depends. It just depends. And I know we live in this depends world, and sometimes we need guidance into is this bad, is this good? And that's what we're here for, to help guide you. But I don't have to control what you think. If you disagree with me on everything we say today, that's okay. I'm just giving you my opinion, what God's put on my heart, or what I need to deal with. We don't, I don't have to control what you think, and you don't have to control what I think. My job is to lay out what the Holy Spirit gives me. Your job is to figure out what you're supposed to do with it. Here's the thing. That week that someone challenged me and I went and dug in, guess what I did that week? I learned a lot. So we agreed to disagree and everything was okay. Unity was built and I learned a lot. So I think the problem is, though, sometimes people argue about positions over Scripture, but they rarely go to Scripture. It's, it's got a word like I was taught, I was always taught this, I always heard this. And they're arguing with you, but they've never gone to Scripture. So if you disagree with something someone says about Scripture, go to Scripture. So that when you come with your disagreeing, you're bringing Scripture, not what you were told, what you were taught by a flawed person, okay? What's that? Right. Aaron's got a good point. If you come to me and say, well, I was always taught that Scripture says this, what's my first comment? Where? Where? Show it to me. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying show it to me. Maybe I haven't read that one yet. I read the whole Bible, but sometimes I was dozing. You know, maybe I missed that point. <laughs> Conflict and disagreements are two different beasts, but they can overlap, right? Conflict involves sin. Disagreements involves differing opinions. But how each of those is handled can have a huge impact on unity or disunity. In both cases, I'm saying if you've got a problem with a person, a disagreement, a sin, go to them. Okay, can we agree on that? So I want to give an example of something that happened in this church, and I want to give this example to brag on. Everybody knows Mandy and Ryan, right? Turn back and wave to Mandy and Ryan. They're sitting back there on the back row. Faithful leaders of our youth. A month or two ago, I can't remember when it was, they asked us to come to their house to talk. 
We went to their house to talk. They had something they needed to address with us. Do you think that was comfortable for them? Was it comfortable for you guys? Is this comfortable right now? No. <laughs> they don't know where I'm going with this. There wasn't necessarily a conflict, but there was a potential disagreement, some misunderstandings, and they sought us out and asked us, here's what we see. Is this what's going on? And you know what that allowed all of us to do? It allowed all of us to lovingly talk. We got to explain our side. They got to explain their side, and I think we both learned out of it. My perceptions were probably wrong. Their perceptions are probably wrong to some extent. And we met in the middle, and what did it create? Unity. Why? Because they had the courage to come talk. Don't be scared to go talk to the person because so many times you sit down and you realize that what you heard or what you thought was just a lie from the enemy and it wasn't even happening like you thought. And that person's probably thinking the same thing about you. And when you sit down and talk it out, you get the opportunity to come together and bring unity. Do you think the enemy wants unity between us and our youth pastors? No. Do you think he wants disunity? Yes. But they follow scripture. They followed the Matthew 18 model when they thought we were doing something wrong. It's not about whether we were doing something wrong. It was about them having the courage to bring it to us so we could seek resolution. I was proud of them then, and I'm super proud of them now. When you disagree, I'm sorry, when you don't address conflict or disagreements, whether it becomes gossip or not, it is a breeding ground in your head for the lies from the enemy. I've seen disunity happen over things that never actually happened. Have you ever seen that? Disunity happens, families are split, churches are split, and if you get out on the both sides of the story, it never happened like it was told. It causes destruction nonetheless. All right, so that's the two main things I want to hit on this morning, but I got a couple of other quick things. I don't know really how to say this one. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. There are people that think getting close to a pastor or a person in charge gives them status or makes them a better Christian. I'm going to give you a news flash. I'm a pretty flawed person. Wendy's a pretty flawed person. Every pastor I've worked with, been under, is a pretty flawed person. Most of them won't even do like you and admit they got flaws. Don't put yourself in a position where you think you've got to be close to them to have some power. Please. I didn't know how to say that without just saying it. In my opinion, unity is created when the highest seeks out the lowest, not the lowest seeking out the highest. And I want to explain that. Jesus sought out his disciples. They didn't look at him and say, he's the savior of the world, the Messiah, I want to follow him. He went to them in their place and drew them out. Seeking out the one in charge usually doesn't create unity. It creates at least perceptions of favoritism, and it creates jealousy. It creates wrong impressions. Man, this person's getting all this attention, and I'm not. 
I've said this before to some people. Some of the people I spend the most time with are the ones I'm trying to coach the most and work with the most. I don't be scared to come talk to me. <laughs> I just probably created some weirdness there. <laughs> and I'm not talking about when people come and ask for advice. I'm talking about when people aggressively try to put themselves right up next beside the pastor or leader and kind of create a barrier to the people below that. You guys have seen that, right? Then what happens? They start talking for the pastor. I wonder what Jason thinks about this topic. Well, I was talking to him last week, and here's what he thinks. Probably not correct, but it's your perception, right? I've seen this happen so many times, and it just does not create unity. Maybe it should be, I wonder what Jason thinks about this, and somebody should just go, I don't know, let's go ask him. I wonder what Ryan thinks about this with youth. Well, I was talking to Ryan last week, and here's what he thinks. No, let's go ask him. That will create unity when we go ask versus disunity when we try to speak for someone that you don't have the authority to speak for. So it's going to be awkward now. No one's going to want to talk to me. Please don't do that. <laughs> I'm really thinking about past pastors, honestly, when I talk about this, where people are trying to get to that position of power. If you want to know what a leader thinks, go ask the leader, not the leader spokesperson or the person who's made themselves the spokesperson. I worked at a church that you couldn't get to the leader and you had to go through the little Hitler spokesperson. And everybody in here knows who I'm talking about. Unless you didn't go to that church. And I worked for them. Anyways, no. I'm, Lord, I'm sorry. That may be one we need to cut out. <laughs> All right, quick things. I'm going to wrap up here. Quick things. I told you I was excited. We're going to go for a while. Constantly being sarcastic instead of addressing hurts and pains creates disunity. Guilty. I do that. And some of y'all do that. Some of us do that. Addressing the hurts creates unity. This is kind of back to the conflict thing. A lot of times we hide conflict and sarcasm. Constantly criticizing people and telling them what they do wrong creates disunity. Looking for the good in people and encouraging their gifts, encouraging them to get better in something creates what? Unity. Selfishness creates disunity. Selflessness creates unity. Did I say that right? Selfishness creates disunity. Selflessness creates unity. Lying, don't lie. It creates unity every time. Every time. And you think, well, I don't generally lie, but remember, anything that's not the truth is a lie. Anything that's slightly twisted from not the truth is a lie. If I come to you and say, are you mad at me? And you say, no. But you are, that's a lie. And that creates disunity when I was trying to create unity. Okay? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. If you know anything about me and have walked with me for any time in ministry, you know that I think vulnerability creates unity. 
if you are willing to gut yourself and tell people your flaws and who you are and where you're broken and what you're working on, they will respect you. And if they don't, get away from them. If they can't accept where you're trying to work, if you get mad because I stand up here and tell you I'm broken, leave. But I hope it draws you because you know you got somebody who's going to be honest about their feelings and where they are. Hiding who you are, not letting people know who you are creates disunity, not unity. I try to always tell you where we succeed and where we fail. Because I want to have unity that you know I'm going to be truthful with you about where I stand on something. Thank you. I got an amen. Finally. I want to be clear. We are not trying to create a, work, a place that's perfect. We're trying to create a place that's seeking holiness together. I didn't even know they were singing that song. Beverly sent me the song list this week. I didn't even look at it till this morning. I didn't know we were singing a song about holy, holy, holy. That's our goal. We're trying to find a place where we can seek holiness together. Not be perfect, but seek holiness a place where it's okay to be broken and we seek healing together. We are not going to be culturally relevant. And I will tell you right now, that's something everybody fights. Cultural relevance, I said it before on my little tangent, does not create unity. <laughs> I'm going to say something kind of... If we're seeking what's culturally relevant... say this differently I think the Bible says that being a cross a Christ follower means you're always going to be in conflict with cultural relevance always if you are going to be a Christ follower you will always be in conflict with cultural relevance so I don't know why I, I had kind of the two big things and a lot of little things. These are just a few things that when I prayed, they came to mind that I thought, ah, the things I need to address to make a more unified environment. I'm sure there's more areas we could address, but my hope is that when we talk about this big topic of unity, I think we could spend weeks on it, and I'm trying to do it in two weeks, that you're challenged. I hope you're challenged. I hope you're challenged like I have been over the last couple of weeks. I'm challenged to make myself better, to make you better, to make everybody around us better. Not just in this church, but when we go out into public. And I fail a lot. I failed at the golf course this week with the guy that didn't want my son to try on a hat because he's afraid he had COVID and I went off on him. I, you know, we don't always represent Christ. I was wearing a Jesus mask when I did it. It wasn't good. <laughs> it was a flipping tables moment. My point is, I want to make myself better. I want to make you better. But I want you to make the people you touch better. It's your work, your family. Guess what? We can't have unity in this body until you have unity in your family. And I don't mean your parents, grandparents. I'm talking about in your home. A lot of scripture says for leaders, don't try to lead a church. Don't try to lead a ministry until you have your home taken care of. So unity is bigger than this church thing. It's about the body of Christ. What I want to encourage you to do is don't let Satan twist what we talked about today into me saying you're not good enough or that you've done something wrong. 
Am I sitting back looking at what all of you have done wrong to determine what to preach on? I'm asking God, what am I doing wrong to preach on? You know, back before I was chasing Jesus with my whole life, when I heard sermons that were tough like today, I tried to look at my life and say, do I need to get better here? It's real easy to hear this and be like, man, he's talking to so-and-so because I've been hearing them gossip. He's talking to so-and-so. Don't do that. Ask the question of, is he talking to me, he being Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit talking to me? Do I need to address conflict better, or am I a gossiper? Am I avoiding and creating, am I avoiding conflict and creating a fake peace? Am I allowing disagreements to affect unity? Am I being selfish in what I want versus what everybody else around me wants? You know, Paul talks often about us trying to be more Christ-like. Our entire life of being a Christian, we're supposed to achieve to be more Christ-like. And if we do that together, if all of us do it together, from the smallest, from this little baby right here, all the way up to whoever's the oldest in here. I'm going to point out John. He's back there waving. We will have unity if we're all striving to be more Christ-like. On the flip side, if we're always focusing on what's wrong, we're going to have disunity like you can't imagine, and we'll never have unity. So i got a final question for you this morning. Do you think you make a difference in the unity in the body of Christ? You. Do you think you, not your parents, not your spouse, do you make a difference in the unity for the body of Christ? Do you make a difference in disunity in the body of Christ? I think this gets to the why it's important question. It takes this little stream out here to make up the Tennessee River. Tennessee River is okay without it, but it takes it to make it up. The kingdom of God will be okay without you and me. But we have something to give to it to make it better, stronger, more powerful. Our church has a place in building the kingdom of God. Our unity has a place in being attractive to the world, to who we feed. But our disunity can be poison to the kingdom of God. How many of you think you're too small to make a difference? I don't make a difference in the body of Christ. I don't do this. I don't do that. How many of you think and get lulled into believing a lie that you don't make a difference? So I'm going to end with a few reminders from the Bible where God doesn't care about numbers. Noah, one man. Scripture says he was the only righteous man left. The only one. And God chose to save the world because of one man. And his family got saved too. I guess the assumption is his family was righteous too. One man, one family saved the world because that one man stood his ground for the kingdom of God. How many times in the body of Israel, you ever read 1 Kings, 2 Kings? A prophet would be the only one left standing. A king would worship God and things would be good for Israel. And then the next four kings would hate God, get God out, and there'd be one man. Anybody ever heard of Elijah? 
Elijah is often referred to as one of the most Holy Spirit-filled people. In 1 Kings 19, it says he was the only prophet left. He was the only one left. What if Elijah would have caved when he went up against 400 prophets? Would we be here? I don't know. One person, Elijah, had faith. Maybe that's why he had so much Holy Spirit, because he had faith, and he was the only one. This is a guy that got taken up in a whirlwind. This is a guy that got to be there at Jesus' transfiguration. He was the only one. And so many times, there was only one prophet left that believed, and he was given tough messages, not easy ones. Repent, turn from your sin, turn back to the kingdom. Jesus chose 12, not 4,000. By the way, the disciples often didn't have unity. You read those scriptures about where they were fighting over who was most important? Who's Jesus like the most? The road to heaven is narrow. path of destruction is wide. That doesn't sound like big numbers to me. I think we've got to get our American Jesus out of this discussion. We made it about numbers. America's made it about numbers. The American church has made it about numbers. The Bible did not. So get out of the lie that you don't matter. Every one of you, what if you're the last one left? That's what I'm going to end on. What if you were the last one? So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you don't care about numbers. You care about quality. You care about a standing up for you. And today I'm asking you, Lord, to prick our hearts in the places that we are not creating unity. And we may have to have some tough discussions, and we may have to go to some tough places, but Father, I pray that you bless us with unity out of it. And the person in here that feels the least, Lord, show them that they may be the one. They may be the one that creates the most unity. We started off by saying unity is power. So Father, I pray that none of us would get lulled into a lie that our little church in Friendsville, Tennessee, of 50 or so people, can't make a difference for your kingdom. Because together, unified, we are powerful and we can reach the world. Our little stream pouring into Floyd's Creek, flowing into the Tennessee River, can reach the ocean. We can reach the world if we maintain unity. So, Father, I'm asking you to help show us how to have unity. I'm not asking you to give it to us. I'm asking you to show us where we need to work for it and give us the courage to work for it. In Jesus' name, amen.